0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hey there, good morning and welcome here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. I am home for the holidays and hope that you are too and enjoying some good time, relaxing time with your family and friends. But as we know, the news never sleeps. And so joining me is Congresswoman-elect Lauren Bobert. She's from the great state of Colorado. She's a Republican, and we're going to talk about a lot. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So walk us through your plan, because you plan to challenge the Electoral College vote for Joe Biden. Right now, on December 14th, Biden got 306 votes compared to 232 for President Trump. And so by this metric, Joe Biden is the victor Walk us through your plan. We had Congressman Mo Brooks on this program previously to walk through the program, but what's your perspective? What's your strategy?
2: Well, Congressman Mo Brooks is the expert, and he is who I'm going to uh, for advice in this. Uh, But just to put it plain and simple, uh, the American people know that there's something funny that's going on with this contested election. Uh, we know that Joe Biden is not more popular than Hillary Clinton. We know that Joe Biden is not more popular than Barack Obama, unless we are going to go with the, the narrative that Joe Biden is actually who carried President Barack Obama over the finish line uh, to receive his uh, record vote. It, it, it's just not um, mathematically possible. The um, the ballot drops that we're seeing in the middle of the night in these, in these uh, battleground states, and uh, the irregularities in the voting, uh, the multiple votes that are taking place, the suitcases of ballots in Georgia that are being pulled out in the middle of the night after, poll- um, after uh, ballot observers um, have have left and and they are being ran through the machines multiple times. You know, All of this is just, um, it-, it-, it certainly needs to be uh, seen in court. It needs to have its day, but I'm not in that branch. I'm not in the judicial branch. Uh, I am in the branch of government that has a duty to fulfill on January sixth, so I will be objecting to the electoral vote in the states where that we have seen these irregularities. And ensuring the integrity of elections that take place in America is essential to our republic. Several states removed voter safeguards during the twenty twenty elections that violated provisions in their respective state constitutions and the United States Constitution. And as a representative sworn to defend United States Constitution, it is my responsibility to object to the Electoral College results that were recorded under these circumstances.
1: And so when it comes to, we're looking at the mechanics of how this would happen. So the objection (laughs) happens, you need to have somebody in the Senate who will sign off also. And then if that happens, it triggers two hours of debate. First of all, do you have someone who is certainly on the record in the Senate? Because we heard from Tommy Tuberville that he says that he is considering it. But do you have someone definitely locked in? And then after that, it'll go to two hours of debate, but then it goes to a vote. So what's your strategy? Because you're going to be in the I mean, the Republicans are currently in minority right now and you will be again in the new Congress. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to overcome this? Because it has to have a majority to proceed. You're absolutely correct. And
2: uh, we do hope that there will be a, a Senator that comes on board and uh, says, "We are not going to acquiesce to this. We are not going to just sit idly by and um, and let our republic fall apart." Um, we are hoping that Senator uh, Tupperville will be the one um, who who co-sponsors these objections to to bring it to the floor for a two hour debate. Uh, but we there are multiple conversations going on on a daily basis with Senators um encouraging them. To stand strong for the American people. And, and really, the American people are the answer uh, to what happens on January 6th. We need a ground well of millions and millions of patriots calling their congressmen, calling their senators, and saying uh, they need to object to these states like Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, where we are seeing these severe irregularities in, uh, in, this, in the voting process. So we need the American people to write letters, send emails, make phone calls to their congressmen and their senators, even though they're not in those battleground states. But we need all the support we can get to uh, object to these. And I hope that there are some Democrats that come on board. Um, I get I get emails from Democrats on a regular basis saying I voted for Joe Biden and I know that something is not right. Thank you for taking a stand. I, I sat in the Oval Office with President Trump just a few weeks ago, and I told him, don't give up. Don't stop fighting until this election is actually over. I want you to use all of your constitutional authority to the tilt. And uh, if I'm going to tell the President of the United States to do that, I'm certainly going to do my part. Uh, This is my part, January 6th. I play an important role, and uh, the American people deserve secure and fair elections. And unfortunately, the 2020 election was neither of those things. I will be
1: voicing my objection
2: on January 6th.
1: So when it comes to the House vote, who are some of the House Democrats? Are you targeting specifically House Democrats to come over and swing over? Do you think there are some vulnerable Democrats? Give us some names.
2: So I don't want to throw anybody under the bus uh, just yet. I want them to be able to come out and and say why they would they would come out. Um, There has been uh, there have been a couple of conversations on my end. Uh, with Democrats, uh, but you know that that really does need to be their choice to come out and and say this is why I am standing for a secure and and fair election. Uh, you know, it's it's funny right now. We we have a lot of Democrats in the media, left-leaning media, um, and 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 liberals who are accusing Republicans right now of the things that they've been guilty of for at least four years now. Um, we well, I want to ask you about of- that.
1: I, I I want to ask you about that specifically on the electoral college. Talk about this. Question of a double standard, specifically in the media, because Democrats have done the same thing that you say you're planning to do in 2001, 2005 and 2017, where they challenged Mm -hmm. the Electoral College in Congress against the Republican. And now the media is saying that what you're doing is treasonous, that it is undermining democracy. What's your response to that? Uh, Well,
2: they're masters of projection and messaging and they they get buzzwords. And as soon as one uh, leads with a buzzword, they all follow. And I, I really uh, would love to see the Republican Party join an agreement like the Democrats do when it comes to these things. Uh, but right now, uh, yes, they're, they're accusing Republicans of, um, of seditious acts with this because we are following the Constitution. But as you mentioned, we've seen the Democrats challenge the electoral vote in 2001, 2005, 2017. And so this isn't something new. This isn't something that we've just created. This is in the Constitution, and um, I'm excited for it to go to the House for a final vote. Um, In the 2020 election, numerous states changed their voter procedures without the approval of their respective state legislatures. In several instances, uh, they, they extended even the time. Uh, for people to vote and return their mail-in ballots well past election day. And uh, and, and there was a lot of fraud that was involved we got to leave it right there.
1: We're going to commercial break.
0: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
3: There really is no place like home.
0: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
1: Hey there, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad you're here with us this morning. We are back with Congresswoman elect Lauren Bobert. She is from the great state of Colorado. Good morning again, Lauren. Good morning. So I want to hear more about your plan because you reportedly have said that you plan to carry a Glock at the Capitol. Walk us through that. Absolutely.
2: Uh, Well, Carrie, as you know, D.C. has a violent crime problem. Uh, Their violent crime rate is 158% higher than the national average. Uh, There have been uh, at least 180 homicides so far in 2020, and that's a 20% increase from last year, and we're in the midst of a pandemic and a shutdown, uh, a a lockdown in Washington, D.C., and crime is still rising. I need a way to defend myself. Uh, I'm not sure what the average person thinks uh, a day in the life of a United States congressman is like, uh, but I don't go to work in an armored vehicle. I don't have police escorts. I am my security. So I will be walking from my home to the the Capitol each and every day that I work there. And I need a way to protect myself. I uh, proudly open carry when I'm home in Colorado uh, because that's how I I choose to defend myself. When I started carrying, uh, a a real life uh, instance happened. A man was brutally beaten outside of my restaurant and lost his life. There were no weapons involved. Uh, This was uh, one man dying at the hands of another. And I needed a way to protect myself, to protect the people that were around me. And so that's when I took advantage of Colorado's open carry laws. In Washington, D.C., I will bring that same protection with me. I've already gone through the Washington, D.C. requirements for their concealed carry uh, classes, their courses. I've taken those. Um, I've gone out shooting and had a great time doing that. And uh, now I'm I'm waiting for my concealed carry permit to arrive. So I can conceal on my way to the Capitol and on Capitol grounds.
1: Interesting. And when you say you're waiting for your permit to arrive, you think you're going to be waiting longer than usual? What? What's the? Is there an established statutory wait period, or are they going to drag you out?
2: Uh, so I, I believe that they have 128 days uh, to give that to me. But we we were hoping to get this expedited um, since I've been extremely vetted and uh, and gone through the courses. Uh, so we were trying to get that. Delivered a little bit sooner than 120 days, um, but hopefully it'll arrive before June thir- or January 3rd when I am uh, sworn in. That would be fantastic. Um, but if not, um, then I will take extra precautions and uh, and and just make sure that I am safe uh, in in traveling to the Capitol. I know that there are currently other members of Congress who have their permits, uh, so maybe I'll just hang
1: extra close with them. And what do you say to those who say? There are Capitol Police everywhere. This is excessive. You're just basically encouraging a culture of gun-toting. And just having more guns means more violence overall because it's embracing a culture of violence. What's your response to people who say that?
2: Um, I would say that all of that is, uh, is, is false. Just because we have Capitol Hill Police there uh, doesn't mean that they're going to be there in the instant that I need them. I've, I've walked the halls of, uh, of Congress and uh, they're not uh, around every single corner and, and walking side by side with you um, in, in, in the hallways. And besides that, in order to carry on my way home or on my way to work, um, I have to have it there on the hill. So if I can't carry on the hill, then I can't carry at it all. Uh, it's, it's really funny how the same group of people who have been shouting defund the police all year now want me to rely on police officers. Ah, uh, for my safety, if I were to be in imminent danger, you can't have it both ways. And that's why we are seeing such an an, an increase of new gun owners in America uh, because they are seeing that there's an entire party who would shut down uh, our our police if given the opportunity to. Um, all year, we've been hearing uh, to to dissolve, dismantle, and disband our police officers and and defund them. Uh, So the American people will have a way to protect themselves. And we have the Second Amendment. And in Washington, D.C., that is where our Second Amendment rights should be protected more than any other place. Uh, This is where all of our rights should be uh, freely exercised and protected. So I will be carrying my firearm. And, uh, you know, maybe we need a history lesson on the congressional baseball game practice where a man opened fire. Uh, against members of Congress, and Whip Steve Scalise was critically injured and almost lost his life. There were Capitol Hill police present that day, but that's because Whip, Whip Scalise was there because of his leadership status. Status, Capitol Hill police were present and able to neutralize the threat. Had he have not been there, all of the other members would have been vulnerable to that attack uh, because they would have not had the protection of the Capitol Hill Police present. So um, we are grateful for our, our law enforcement officers, but I can't count on them to be there every second of the
1: day. It's interesting you mentioned the leadership status. That's sort of the VIP status. We've seen people in Hollywood over and over with their own private security guards, also Democratic leaders with their own security details funded by the taxpayers. Talk a bit about this double standard of private security for me or public security for me, but not for the the regular folk?
2: Yes, this is what we're seeing in, in so many areas of life right now, Carrie. Uh, rules are for thee and not for me. Um, we see it when it comes to our Second Amendment rights. We see it when it comes to speech. We see it when it comes to mask enforcement uh, or or what restaurant you're going to go to. Uh, and And so we're seeing this all over the country. And I think a lot of Americans are frustrated at that and are beginning to rise up and, and stand up to these politicians who, uh, who are taking advantage of, of the system and, and suppressing the American citizen. I saw it firsthand with Robert Francis O'Rourke. One of my first political experiences uh, was me as a citizen, as a mom, as a gun-toting American, I drove down to Robert Francis O'Rourke's presidential campaign rally uh, to confront him on his second amendment stance. He had just told everyone Hell yes, we're going to take your AR15s and your AK-47s. He told us all, we are taking your guns. And so I drove three hours to his rally with my glock on my hip to tell him, "Hell, no, you're not. And at that rally, he had uh, officers with, with sniper rifles on the roof of the building, uh, a complete secure detail around a security detail around him and uh, in the same breath, he is wanting gun confiscations of American citizens and wants us to be defenseless. Uh, we've all seen the tragedies that happen in gun-free zones where victims are left defenseless. And um, I think that that's the narrative that we need to bring back to the the surface. I don't differ in my heart uh, when it comes to gun violence and uh, school shootings, mass shootings. Um, I, I I differ with Democrats um, on this issue with data. Uh, these these Shootings take place in gun-free zones where people are unable to defend themselves. And, and that's when you get mass shootings. Um, in, in areas where citizens are lawfully allowed to protect themselves with a firearm, um, there's, we don't have those mass casualties. The average number of deaths are two, the first victim and the shooter, because there is an armed citizen present president there to neutralize the threat. Uh, So I I think an armed society is a polite society, and it's something that we can begin to uh, normalize once again. All right.
1: Congresswoman-elect Lauren Boebert, we appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much for having me. God bless.
1: God bless and congratulations. Stay with us, folks. We've got a congressman who is going to be challenging Joe Biden's nominee over at the Pentagon. What's his plan? What's he going to do? He's going to walk us through this. Why is he opposing this Pentagon pick? We'll be right back. Stay with us.
4: Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping
2: Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmoviecom Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmoviecom Wondery.
1: Hey there, good morning and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad that you're with us, hoping that you are enjoying your holidays, hoping that you are home for the holidays or if you're working You are definitely watching this program and all of Chessity's programming to get your news fix. Joining me here is Congressman Mike Gallagher. He's a Republican from Wisconsin. He recently wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed that's very interesting. We're going to get to it. Good morning, Congressman.
5: morning. How are you?
1: Doing well. So your Wall Street Journal op-ed, the title is No More Generals Atop the Pentagon. And you go in and you say that you voted to allow retired Marine General Jim Mattis to serve as the Secretary of Defense, but now you are not going to do the same thing for retired Army General Lloyd Austin, who is Joe Biden's nominee. Some people would say this is a double standard. What changed?
5: Well, in 2017, when we voted to change the law, uh, the National Security Act, prohibition on former generals serving who haven't. Had a, originally a 10 year cooling off period. Now it's been changed to a seven year. It was the first time that this exception had been made in multiple decades, over 50 years. The last time was General George Marshall. And so it didn't seem at the time like we were creating a trend. It seemed exceptional. But now we, as Senator Jackery, the ranking member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, pointed out, we should not do this more than once in a generation. But now we're considering doing it within the span. Of four years. And I do think that that will undermine the norm of civilian control of the military. The second thing, as I argue in the piece, I think as General Mattis' experience reveals, the skill set necessary to be a successful combatant commander or general officer is not necessarily the same skill set that one needs to be a successful secretary of defense, particularly at a time when we are going to have to make incredible changes to The Pentagon bureaucracy in order to posture ourselves to deter the Chinese Communist Party by denial. It's going to require someone who's comfortable with advocacy, someone who's comfortable with engaging in debates, not only with Congress, but also within the executive branch, within the White House. And that's not something that general officers are necessarily trained to do. They're trained to sort of salute, carry out the mission, and not engage in that fray. And so I just think we need to be mindful of what we've learned from the recent experience. And also, I think it's fair to say that General Austin, while incredibly accomplished, while a true patriot, does not bring to this job a true expertise with the primary region of the world we're concerned with, which is the Indo-Pacific.
1: You mentioned that in your piece. So you said that General Austin's background has been primarily the Middle East. And you said that China is really where we need to pivot, where we need to focus our attention. Who would you say instead, who would you say would be a better fit who has more experience with China?
5: Well, certainly, uh, I think the leading uh, contender uh, prior to General Austin, Michelle Flournoy, has an established track record of uh, multiple publications recently on how we posture the Department of Defense in order to deter China, she actually articulated something in a recent foreign affairs article uh, that it, that I as a Republican get behind, which is to say we need the explicit goal of creating a Navy and enable posture in the Indo-Pacific where we have the ability to sink the entire PLA Navy within 72 hours. That's actually a, a worthy goal. So that's one option. Uh, I don't know what other names uh, the Biden team has uh, on their list right now. Uh, and I'm certainly open to. Uh, And I hope General Austin, when he comes before the Armed Services Committee, will make a forceful case, not only for prioritizing China, but in specific detail how he intends uh, to do that. Uh, Because really, this is the grand strategic change we need to make right now. After two decades of prioritizing counterterrorism and counterinsurgency in the Middle East, we now have to prioritize great power competition in a different region of the world, the Indo-Pacific and whoever the Secretary of Defense is is going to have to hit the ground running. It needs establish relationships with our key allies there, Establish relationships with non-aligned countries like Vietnam and India. We're going to have to deepen those partnerships, and we need to have a clear-eyed assessment of what we're dealing with in the Chinese Communist Party.
1: So you're planning to vote against him. What's your strategy, though? Because you're a Republican, you're in the minority. Do you think this will have any
5: effect? And more to the point, I'm in the House, so we're not in the confirmation business, but we will get a vote right. on, on the waiver. Uh, now, we have had prominent Democrats on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, my fellow Marine, Seth Moulton, recently came out and said he's not going to support a waiver. Uh, we have a, uh, a large number of Democrats that most, you know, the overwhelming majority of Democrats back in 2017 did not support the waiver for Secretary Mattis. So I think they're going to have to explain why they suddenly support the waiver for General Austin right now. And so I think there is a chance that we get a lot of Democrats to come our way. Uh, And I think we'll certainly get a lot of Republicans on the Armed Services Committee and throughout the caucus who are concerned about the precedent we're setting with waiving the law uh, so quickly in a short uh, period of time. And then I would go one step further. I think it's worth us going back in this year's national defense authorization process and reinstating the 10-year cooling-off period as opposed to the seven-year cooling-off period right now, uh, I think it makes sense. I'm not quite sure why we we reduced it by three years. And I think that would send a strong signal that we're really serious about restoring the norms of civilian control of the military. The final thing I'd say is we really need to be careful about what I see as this increasing trend of former retired general officers and flag officers um, adopting very political roles, uh, speaking at conventions for both parties, uh, and certainly for civilians to sort of use general officers as political props, I think that's a bad standard for civil military relations.
4: So
1: legally, if, let's say hypothetically, you pick off enough Democrats to oppose the waiver in the House, is the Senate legally allowed to just go ahead and confirm, or do they need that waiver?
5: They need that waiver. It would be illegal uh, for General Austin to serve. I mean, I guess, you know, as I've learned over the last four years as a non-lawyer in Congress, lawyers can come up with elaborate justification to do pretty much anything. But I think a plain and honest reading of the statute and and the Constitution would suggest that it would be illegal to confirm because it would violate the National Security Act of 1947, even in its uh, amended form form. So, Uh, That being said, you know, there are are plenty of other uh, candidates uh, that that Biden could choose from. Um, He may want to even look to uh, a Republican if he's serious about a unity administration. I'm not sure his own party would let him do that. But, um, you know, I think this is just a critical moment. And one of the rare areas of bipartisanship uh, in Congress at a time when the country is very bitterly divided is uh, on the issue of China, uh, um, you know, p- colleagues uh, of mine in, in Congress, uh, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party on the Armed Service Committee all agree with the basic logic in the national defense strategy and the national security strategy, which suggests that our primary threat is China. Uh, and it's not even close. And therefore, we need to build our military deterrent in order to reflect that.
1: Congressman, I got to ala- ask you last question. General Austin, who is Biden's nominee, he is African-American. A lot of people in the media, I have no doubt, have said to you, you voted for Mattis. He's white. This guy's black. Why are you doing this? Is this a racial animus thing?
5: Well, I think to suggest race has anything to do with it is uh, offensive. Um, I don't think race should play a role in who we select as a secretary of defense. It's certainly not something that I'm taking into uh, account when I'm analyzing this. Uh, I'm concerned with um, civil military relations and more than anything else, I'm concerned with how we keep the country safe at a time of great turmoil. And so to inject identity politics into geopolitics is a foolish endeavor.
1: All right, Congressman, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Stay with us, folks. We got more coming up here on Just the News AM. Stick around. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad you're with us here this Tuesday morning. Hope you are enjoying your holidays. So a group called Democrats for Life in America announced the content of a bill on Facebook and an online petition. This bill was called is called the Late Term Abortion Ban Act, and it's one that was sponsored by Tulsi Gabbard, Congresswoman in the House. It's a bill to block abortion of fetuses who are capable of feeling pain. Joining me here to discuss this is Kristen Day. She's with Democrats for Life. Good morning, Kristen.
4: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on today.
1: Good to have you. So walk us through this bill and your work. Did you work directly with Tulsi Gabbard?
4: No. So this type of legislation has been uh, around and states have been trying to pass it and recognize that a baby in the womb um, does have feelings and can um, feel pain. Uh, You know, I've had three kids myself and I know when pregnant, you know, you push on their little feet when they're in your belly and they'll push back so they can't they do have feelings. So this bill would just say that if you that you should provide, um, you know, protection and support to babies in the womb if you are going to um, end their lives.
1: So the bill itself, a congressman who's congresswoman who is a Democrat introduced it, but Democrats. Overall, it's in the platform is a pro-abortion party. What chance do you think this has of getting anywhere?
4: Well, probably not this session because her term ends just in, in on January third. So, but for us, it was very encouraging to see uh, you know a presidential candidate former presidential candidate like Tulsi Gabbard come out and recognize that, what a majority of Democrats do believe, that you know, a majority of Democrats are opposed to late-term abortion. A Majority of Democrats do believe that we should provide protection to babies, um, especially if they're born alive following an abortion, or um, whether they're aborted late term, um, they still should be provided all the you know, protection that um, you would any other human being. So we're just excited that she recognized um, this fact and put it out there um, for, for, to have discussions in our party about the importance of protecting life at all stages.
1: So this bill would outlaw abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy unless the mother is at risk for severe health repercussions or loss of life, if an abortion is not performed, what about people who would say, "Why 20 weeks? Why not right from conception?" If you believe this is a
4: human life at stake, right? So a lot of um, you know a lot of people in the pro-life movement would like to see abortion ended altogether. But I think it, when you are looking at the issue of uh, putting limits on it. Uh, 20 weeks is very reasonable because babies can survive um, if born. Um, if, if given the opportunity to live, they might need um, some medical attention. But, you know, if you look at a, a baby at 20 weeks in the womb, they're fully formed. There's no doubt that this is a human, living human being that should be um, protected, not aborted. So uh, it's, um, you know, I think it's mainstream. It's a mainstream position. A majority of people would agree upon this. The Democratic leadership is, is out of touch with majority opinion on this issue. And we would encourage um, you know, the next Congress to really look at this seriously and try to provide protections to these babies and these mothers who deserve more than abortion.
1: So you seem to be in an endangered species because, well, you're a woman. And when you look, for example, at a female Democrat who's trying to run for Congress, the money, the fundraising, Emily's List, the big juggernauts of money, they are explicitly for pro-abortion women. What do you say to a pro-life female Democrat, or or male Democrat for that matter, who says, wow, I am an endangered species? We saw this in a race in Illinois where it was a pro-life Democrat who was primaried by someone who was pro-abortion, and she beat him. You seem to be an endangered species. What's your message for pro-life Democrats about their chances of whether to run or not. Maybe, maybe they give up and they run as a Republican. What's your message to them? And then what's your message
4: to your leadership? My message to Democrats who are pro-life is stop backing down, stand firm on what you believe. Uh, you know, I think people like Dan Lipinski, who stood up for life for pre-born babies, it, he is a real Democrat. And I have seen more just really courageous candidates all around the country who are standing up um, to the party and standing up for life. So I would encourage anybody in who in the Democratic Party who's thinking about running and is pro-life, don't change your position. Let's change the party to be consistent with its position in protecting the vulnerable. You know, nobody is more vulnerable than a baby in the womb and there's no reason on this planet why the Democratic Party shouldn't be advocating to protect those babies and providing support for women. I think we see a lot of um, talk about protecting access to abortion and reproductive rights for women but we don't see anybody really talking about protecting access to parenthood and the opportunity to parenthood. You know, we send women to abortion clinics and say, that is the answer. What about equal access to being parents? And I think that's something that my party should be fighting for. Let's look for ways where we can support women so they don't see abortion as their only choice. And that's very consistent with
1: So we were promised this concept of safe, legal and rare by Democrats like Bill Clinton, but we've seen the number of abortions has been going up uh, in recent years. I mean, there has been a downtick, but it's, uh, it's overall we're talking 60 million babies who have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. That's quite a num- That's that is not rare. Let's just put it that way. Journalistically speaking, 60 million abortions is not rare. So was this just something that was given to us by Democrats as a talking point? Real quick, and sorry, I had thirty seconds.
4: Sure, you know, it, yeah. Bill Clinton talked about safe, legal, and rare. Uh, Barack Obama talked about reducing abortion. That's where our party should be focused. We shouldn't be focusing eliminating regulation for abortion and making it less safe for women. And that's the trajectory the party's on right now, and it's wrong. We need to change it. All right, Kristen Day with Democrats for Life. We appreciate it. Thank you. Stay
1: with us, folks. We'll be right back. with Hey there, good morning and welcome here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. I wanna talk here now to Amanda Klu. She is director at the National Inclusion Project. Good morning, Amanda.
0: Good morning.
1: So I want our viewers to know more about what the National Inclusion Project is. I think its mission is wonderful. It's the end of the year. People are thinking about giving. A lot of nonprofits have their goals where they wanna meet their budget. It's been a rough year. So I just wanted folks to know more about what you guys do. Maybe think about doing some help here.
0: Absolutely. Um appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. I am the director of inclusive recreation standards and accreditation at the National Inclusion Project. And what it is that that means and what we do is we help support and create inclusive recreation opportunities for kids with disabilities and their families. That means opportunities to play and learn and discover and move and connect with kids without disabilities at their local community centers, at their local gyms, at their local museums, zoos, camps, summer camp programs, you name it, if kids are there to play, National Inclusion Project is there to help create a supportive experience for them.
1: So when it comes to finding and identifying, because you're a national organization, but the kids themselves, sometimes they can be scattered about, how do you think about selecting which sites to have?
0: Well, we pride ourselves on being a partnering organization. So first and foremost, that means that we rely on folks like you and your viewers to spread the word and let their local why know who we are and what we do, their local summer camp, their local community programs, especially um, connecting with families who have children with disabilities and spreading the word about our mission and our purpose so that programs can get in touch with us, seek out the supports and resources and training that they need so that every child who walks through their doors gets the very best experience possible.
1: And what do you see are sort of the major problems or stumbling blocks? Let's say it's your local Y, What do you see is the most common problem that they don't have the right materials or training? What do you see are the biggest gaps of how to make sure that people are supporting children who have disabilities at their local why, for example?
0: Really starting with knowledge and awareness. Um, a lot of access simply begins with opportunity for kids who have different needs. And building the awareness and providing the education and tools and tips and training to programs and professionals about how it is they can intentionally and meaningfully create inclusive experiences for all kids helps to meet the needs of the kids who need something extra or something different. And it's finding ways to support children's needs as well as their strengths and everything in between. So building that conversation and that foundational knowledge is really the first step.
1: And so when you say they don't have the training, like what specifically, and, and are you talking about kids with, with autism or Down syndrome or just lots of different uh, situations? I mean. I'm just trying to understand more, put some more meat on those bones of exactly what's the gap that you're filling and and who are you serving? Right.
0: Um, so it's serving all kids. So um, rather than focusing on a specific diagnosis or condition, um, we equip programs to design activities in ways that all children, um, regardless of the specific kind of disability that they have, can engage and participate and connect in that activity. So it's everything from learning how to determine whether or not the structure of an organization is inclusive or the space of an activity or a particular building is accessible, or the activities themselves, the crafts, the lessons, the sport activities, the outdoor activities are designed in such a way that any child, regardless of ability or disability, can meaningfully participate and connect with their peers in that activity to learn and thrive.
1: And real quick, tell us about Clay Aiken and his involvement. So Clay, for our viewers who don't know, was my co-host for a couple of years up in Manhattan for a digital news network called Bold TV. And he's the founder of National Inclusion Project. People know him from American Idol. They know him from Celebrity Apprentice and his congressional run. Also, tell us more about his role. How does he get involved with what you guys are doing?
0: So um, Clay founded National Inclusion Project 17 years ago, along with a friend, Diane Bubel. And the project grew out of Clay's relationship working with Diane's son, Mike, who has special needs and autism. And their passion and their mission for creating inclusive recreation and play and hobby experiences for kids like Mike, so that... At the end of a school day, a child who has special needs can go home and into their community and into their summer camps and into their community organizations and connect and learn and have the same experiences that kids without disabilities have.
1: Excellent. Well, how can people get in touch?
0: Um, Visit our website. All of our contact information is on our website, as well as the information to donate. So that is www.inclusionproject.org. My um, fellow staff members and I have open office hours for anyone who wants to connect with us, any program who is interested in collaborating, and you can find all of the resources and supports that we provide to the community, as well as to organizations there.
1: All right, Amanda Clu, a director there at National Inclusion Project. We appreciate wow. it.
0: Thanks so much, have a great morning.
1: Thank you, you as well. And stick with us, folks. We got the talent end of the program here coming up in just a few minutes. You don't want to miss it.
3: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Hey there, welcome back here to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. I'm gonna close the show with a wrap-up looking at the big questions that are outstanding right now for Joe Biden about Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, Dr. Fauci, we know on Christmas Eve, he gave an infamous interview with the New York Times where he basically said that he altered his public scientific estimates based on opinion polls. This was about the concept of herd immunity. He said that basically how much he told people that we needed to have herd immunity was really based on how he felt the people felt if they were more scared about herd immunity, he was less bullish on it, um, and the reverse. So he basically said that he stuck his finger in the wind and said, this is how I'm going to derive my public policy is based on just how much tolerance people have for the idea of herd immunity. So this big question, Joe Biden has said over and over that he wants to trust science. And now you have Dr. Anthony Fauci, who Joe Biden has said he wants to keep on in his administration. In fact, I think he wants to elevate him to an even higher role to be chief medical advisor for the Biden administration. There are a lot of questions now, and Joe Biden has not said anything about this bombshell interview. He's not said that he's going to continue to support Anthony Fauci in the wake of this, but I interviewed a couple different doctors who said that they were very upset about this, including Jay Bhattacharya, He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University, and he said that Fauci's, quote, apparent willingness to mislead the public in support of his preferred policy objective should disqualify him from providing public policy advice in any official capacity.